it's a little early for whiskey, don't you think? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not having it. Yeah, oh, that's, okay. uh, yeah. But don't we, you wish you were? Oh my gosh. We, we, we got the best gift. Ever in the history of all podcasting yeah. on earth. I mean, if you follow us on Twitter at Oral Argument, or you like us on Facebook and see, see our Facebook posts, if Facebook, you know, has it in its head to show you those things. <laughs> Fair point. Because <laughs> it, it decides for you what, what you need yeah, to see. Then, then you, will, you will see a picture of a, uh, of a gift from listener Paul, which yes. arrived um, last week. Uh, we didn't, we didn't have a show last week because, um, Joe was in the middle of various transactions that Joe often is involved in. Is that fair? No. What do you mean? No, that's not the reason you buy and sell things a lot. Yeah, but that's not the reason why we didn't have a show. That's the reason why we didn't have a show on Friday. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And then various other things happened and we decided not to do it Saturday or Sunday. We, now we got, it was an overdetermined failure to broadcast. Absolutely. I I don't want (laughs) to, I didn't mean to blame it all on you. Just most of it. And, And. In the future, we have a, we have a great slate of guests coming up. We do. So we're like clockwork. We've got them pretty much every, every week from here. Line them up, knock them down. In, 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 into the future. But uh, in this interregnum, is that an appropriate use of that word? Not really. Okay. But in, in, in this interregnum, we received a fantastic bottle of whiskey, a Talisker. An amazing, from, an amazing from bottle. Listener. I've got a picture of it on our Twitter feed and, and, and on the Facebook. And... Um, uh, we we had read listener Paul's uh, email or p- parts of it on the show before, I think, um, mm-hmm. where he was about the uh, typography stuff, partly and just partly yep. about how he enjoys the show and and uh, where he had first uh, some tasted, travels he took, where and... he had first tasted real whiskey, and yeah. that was a revelation. He sent us a bottle. It's just fantastic. We had we shared. Uh, uh, we didn't share a glass. I don't. I want to make that clear. We had two separate glasses, but we shared yes. an experience of having this whiskey together. Um, the same day that it arrived, I think you came over and yeah, I did. we chatted. And, oh man, I have to say this stuff is really, really good. I recognize its complexity and I recognize its uh, its individuality. Um, it is not to my personal taste, but you're, I, you're just but I, nuts. But I recognize that it is an amazingly rich, sort of extremely high caliber uh, whiskey. It is really good. It is. And that's, and it's precisely its depth and its complexity. That is why you can understand why it wouldn't be to everyone's taste. It is so, it is so powerful and so, um, uh, so deep and, and complex that not, it will not suit everybody. It will suit other people like to the nth degree. Right. But it will suit, uh, me not at all. So, like, if so, so, <laughs> so, if you're like Joe and and your normal drink is uh like wine coolers, Bartles and James. Yep, you bet. Um, something like that. Yeah, I mean the peaches and strawberry, Bartles and James. You've got your Zimas. Get me my Zima. Yeah, then, right. so <laughs> that you know, when I take a break from my lemonade, I can have my Zima. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Am I bothering you? Not at all. Okay. It's, it's, all right. Fairly, I just, I don't know. I'm needling I mean, you my, a little bit. My, um, my whiskey tastes are decidedly in the Bushmills variety. And so that is a very different experience. Yeah. That's, I, I just, I, I, I my promise, I can't even conceive how Love you a would good not, pims. how you could, how you could drink this whiskey and not think to yourself, boy, I can't wait until the next time I have some of this. And, and that's, that's, that's the gulf between you and me, Joe. Right. It, it makes me wonder. Okay. What are the other differences? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, are we even... Makes you wonder. We're not wired up the same way. Yeah, it's a phrase to live by. Makes you wonder. Okay, so that's that's one piece of big news. And just, you know, very, very, very sincere thanks to listener Paul. Because that was just... It was... So above and beyond. 
Yeah. And it's it just, like amazing. You know, that, that someone cares enough to do that is just it's really uh, great. Um, and a testament to what a great me, guy he is, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So thank, thank you for that. And, and the next time we record a little bit later in the day, <laughs> I'll be enjoying for sure some Talisker yeah. uh, in the course of the show. This was a coffee morning though. So, uh, what else we got, Joe? Yeah. So listener Norm, um, uh, I think it's fair to say that his view of the King against Burwell case on uh, the question about the availability of uh, subsidies for people using uh, federal-run exchanges on the Affordable Care Act um, is very much with the challengers uh, to the statute um, mm-hmm. and uh, very much not with our thinking and not even with the thinking of listener Asher who viewed it as being a tough case and an ambiguous statute. I think you and I view it as clearly favoring the administration's view. Yeah, we spent a long time on Asher's email. He just marched through some various kind of statutory interpretations. He's he's sort of in the middle case, and and I think listener Norm is is very much on the other side of the case. Yeah, and to listener Norm, I just have to say, I didn't really understand. I mean, the argument that Norm seemed to be making was that, uh, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but but that that the intention was clear that that the statute was designed to incentivize states to set these things up and that was perfectly clear and that the Gruber video that everybody points to, which was made apparently after the academic writing on this got started, but that was just icing on the cake. And my I remember reading that and just thinking, well, if it was icing on the cake, it must have been an icing cake. Because <laughs> like, I, I couldn't right. get from his email what it's the icing cake was. The like, there's, yeah. What is the cake? I could not get that. Well, you know, so we I talked about this case last night uh, in huh. Atlanta with my former. So I do this, I think, as I mentioned <clears> on this show, I have this Supreme Court discussion group with some really great, it's totally voluntary. Students come over to my house every couple of weeks. We talk about Supreme Court cases for a couple hours over uh, dinner and drinks. And now I've got some of these, some of these people have graduated. And, and at the home of one of these graduates, we kind of had a little reunion last night in Atlanta. So. Um, I was kind of very late getting back home, which is why I probably still sound a little bit. Mm, but it sounds you know like really I mean? fun. Oh, God, it was so great. And we talked about King versus Burwell. Oh, yeah. And there were a diversity of views. Were any of them listeners of the podcast? Some. Someone didn't even know it existed. Oh, wow. We've not yet reached all the people who would like this show. Okay. I'll, I'll get back to that in a second because the listener asked how, how to support us. And, and that, that's one way. Um, so this was a it was a great discussion, and some of them some of the people at the discussion are, are a little bit more in the listener norm camp. Although mm. I think that they there was a very rich and deep discussion of of statutory interpretation and meaning uh, among people who have very different priors, and it was just great. You know, just Sounds really really, really great. Yeah. So shout out to all my Supreme Court discussion group students, present and former. You guys cool. enri- enrich my life, so uh, thank you for that. I'm doing a, a supportive air guitar gesture right now. Is that like extreme? Yeah. Is that what you're doing there? Yeah, because yeah. it show it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, excellent. What else we got? Didn't we get another one? We got a uh, listener. John uh, sent us a note. Uh, also, this is further King against Burwell material uh, uh, because listener John was curious to hear our thoughts about the Will Baud New York Times op-ed about. Um, uh, the, the doesn't the president have the option of saying uh, in the face of a defeat in King against Burwell, a uh, fine, uh, uh, the subsidies will not be provided as to these litigants. But to anyone who isn't a party to this particular case, right. uh, they're still eligible for the subsidies. So basically pull a Roy Moore to be very rough with it pull it and say that that yeah, to be very rough, that, that yeah. The, yeah, very rough. The, the court, because it's not a class action. The uh, the plaintiffs 
you know, only the plaintiffs can necessarily get relief. And yes, right. obviously, if the court rules this way, then right. any other plaintiff who sues will get right. relief under the now, what's authority clever about of this, this decision. Op-ed, but, uh, ultimately, I think it would be a bad idea, as and which is what Michael Dorff, among others, uh, said in reaction to it. But I mean, what's clever about it is one of the things that's clever about it is that, uh, of course. The the very the very standing issue that was raised in the case that it, it seems like it's actually very hard to come up with people who would be plaintiffs. So the the notion that yeah, say fine if you if you don't if you if you have a problem, file your lawsuit, right? Right. Is in a way calling a bluff on the fact that this isn't really a problem for for virtually anybody. Uh, so they have they really had to search high and low to find these people, most of whom it seems like maybe don't even. So of the four. It seems like three don't really have standing. Perhaps. And, and there's perhaps. a representation so, that one does. And the, so it's the an interesting way to leverage. Again. It's not yeah. it's Roy Moore, but it's the it's the inverse Roy Moore because the 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 protest there is precisely because he thinks lots of people will want to avail themselves of marriage equality. Yeah. Whereas Baud's point is few to any people would appear to want to avail themselves of this of you know, refuseniks on the subsidy. It's so a weird case, yeah. sort of it's, a weird, it's a weird case dynamic. because the, the the standing argument. I think we went over this last time. Is that th- these are people who are arguing that they have a right not to receive federal money, right? They're not to receive subsidies. But the reason that that's an injury is because if they don't receive those monies, that the subsidies, then their uh, their income is low enough where they would not have an obligation under the individual mandate to right. buy insurance, right? right. And so that's the, the ultimate injury is that they're being forced to buy insurance, even though they're so they want to be able to have the right to refuse subsidies so they don't have that obligation. Right. And, and so and finding someone who falls into just that. Who wants to remain uninsured. You have to find right. someone who wants to remain uninsured True. and is willing to turn down the federal money, which would make insurance affordable right. uh, for them. And who therefore doesn't object to the fact that the mandate requires them to do something that they want to do anyway. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, it was an interesting op-ed. It got a lot of attention. I mean, kudos to Will Baud, uh, uh, uh a relatively new professor at the University of Chicago Law School and f- a former clerk to the Chief Justice, I think. Uh, but in any event, um, you know, smart guy, interesting thought piece I, generated I, some attention. I have, to, I have to admit, I've not, I did not read that op-ed, and so I'm not up on it. You know, my inclination, you know, I, this was surprising to me because I had assumed that you know, if the Supreme Court delivers an authoritative interpretation of a statute, that that's, that that interpretation is binding on all the courts, which it certainly is. Which what this means is that if someone else comes in and sues. The court will say, well, the Supreme Court's already decided this. The question is, if the federal government continues to refuse to apply it so that you make other people sue to come in and do it, yeah. um, is, are they subject to contempt? Is it some, and I guess the answer here is no, because they, I guess there's an argument that it's, I don't, I don't really get it. I, I'm arguing from a position of ignorance because I haven't really spent any time with his op-ed or thought it through or even Michael Dorff's post on it. So um, I think I'll shut up about it okay. other than to say that I found it surprising. Okay. Um, uh, what else do we have? Uh, I've got something. Okay. Why don't you do the something you've got? Because um, I think that was the only thing. Those are the only things I had. I've got some big news. Oi. I'm going to start with something and, and we'll, that'll be our, our grand finale before talking to our guest about net neutrality today. Um, Great guest today. Listener Josh on Twitter. Hmm. Um, tweets. Uh, he's tweeted us uh, several times. It's always fun to, to hear his thoughts. Uh, but but he says, "Will you create and advertise a way for listeners to give small amounts of money to support the show?" Oh, which I thought was a, it, it. It first of all it makes me feel good knowing that people value it enough where they would want to support it in that way. And we've thought before about setting up like a Patreon or something like that to uh, 
offset the amount of money. I mean, we have to pay Libsyn to host the audio files and, and uh, Squarespace hosts my blog and the show. Um, and so that's yeah, a certain amount of money each month yeah. that we have to pay. It's not a huge amount, but it is, um, but it's not zero. It's it, well, it's certainly not zero. And, um, you know, we have to talk about it as a family <laughs> as we, as we do our budgeting and stuff like that or, or not, or, or fail to do our budgeting as the case may be. So it is an expense. And we thought maybe <laughs> about, you know, and, and if we did raise a little money, other things that we could do like, we bought these mics and stuff over mm-hmm. time. We, um, uh, and I, we may do something in the future. We we'll probably have to set up a nonprofit and do mm. these kinds of things in order to do this effectively. Right. Um, but of course that's not, we, you know, we, we've never thought about advertising. We haven't even thought about direct listener support because in some ways, even though this is just, you know, this is just something you and I do. It's not necessarily associated with our school in any way. Right. Um, nonetheless, I feel like this is part of our job. Like we are in a position to create these kinds of public goods, right? Um, that wouldn't be support. But that said, maybe taking a little bit of money to offset the physical expenses would not, you know, be uh, at all at odds with that with that mission. So maybe in the future we'll do that for now. Um, it's a lovely thought and I really appreciate yeah, a listener who, who wants to do that. Or like listener Paul who sends us whiskey, which is another way to keep the show going. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but here's the thing that you can, the, for me, the most important thing is, is to take that, to take a little bit of time and introduce other people to the show. Uh, because we just haven't reached everybody yet. I think who would, you know, not everybody who would love the show knows about it yet. I think that's right. Um, a lot of people would hate the show. Yes. Uh, and the fact that they don't know that there's a show out there they would hate isn't really all right. of much consequence. Right. But the fact that there are people who would really enjoy it who don't know about it, that's something, you yeah. know, it'd be nice to reach out and find a way to get to them. So if, you got, if you've got friends who you think might like the show, maybe they don't know how to do podcasts yet. You know, Let them, they've got, yeah, they've got an iPhone or an Android phone or something like that. Yeah. Point them to Pocket Cast or to Overcast. Say, hey, you've got to try this out. You can listen to Radio Lab. You can listen yeah. to Judge Sean Hodgman. Help a and there's this out. great thing called Oral Argument, which yeah. you would love, right? Which is... A, America's Faculty Colloquium. Absolutely. A- AFC. Cyberloquium. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's that word I invented that you thought was, oh, I think the first time I brought that up, you said it was a war crime. Yeah, it is. No, I think you said webinar was a war crime. Webinar. Oh, that and, one's really bad. And cyberloquium was the one word I came up with that was probably even worse in your eyes. Yeah. Well, it's part of your charm. Are right, you ready for the grand finale? Yeah. Is this the piece of news? And, and, and over the two weeks, we might if if we missed your feedback, uh, we don't mean to because we try to get to is all the feedback. Is this your big piece of news? You this said? is my big piece of news. Okay, uh, get back to us if we missed your your yeah, feedback. We apologize. Uh, yeah, because we we try to. Well, argument podcast at gmail.com if you want to send us a note mm-hmm. castigating and, us for missing your feedback. And of course, you need to put a dot in after every two letters. <laughs> <in our life. laughs> no funny business no dots no dashes no nothing although it turns out you can put dots wherever you want to the left of the at sign so strange i i say the canonical email is oral argument podcast at gmail.com yes no funny business that's canon yeah Yeah. um here's the big news (gasps) we've been downloaded in every state in the union including north dakota boom Boom, Done. North Dakota comes through. I don't know who this is. I don't know how it, I, I don't know how it arose. I just, and I included. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I tweeted it and I Facebooked a little image that shows there's one download from the state of North Dakota. Soon to be, you know, where there's one, we, we grow exponentially wherever we get. Yeah. So this is, North Dakota. That rate's going to double. It may eventually be our biggest state. That would be surprising, but uh, anything's possible. Totally. There's a law school there. There are lawyers there. The future is a long there time. There are people, and, and 
a big part of our audience are non-lawyers, non-law students, but just people who think, boy, that, you know, law's more interesting than I thought. Yeah. Give me a seat at America's Faculty Colloquium. <laughs> this thing that I didn't know that I wanted <laughs> that most Americans no does not want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that's, no, it's amazing. It's finally happened. It's great. So thank you, North Dakota mystery listener. You are, uh, you know, you light up my life. Almost as much as Paul. Now, once we start getting uh, whiskey from North Dakota. Oh. Oh, yeah, that, that's the thing. That's the stuff right there. Well, Joe. Shall we talk about net neutrality with our guests? I think we shall. What's up? Are you like in a copy room or something, Aaron? I had a, uh, I had a heater on. My office is like freezing cold today. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Yeah, it would, be, it would be better without that, so long as you don't, you know, if you get... No, no, I, I think I got the temperature up to a point where I can function. Okay, so long cool. as you don't end up in suspended animation at some point, or you <laughs> yeah, go into yeah. some kind of fugue state or we, anything. Yeah, we sent Aaron into the carbonite. Because <laughs> Aaron's just a little slip of a thing, so I could see him getting cold. <laughs> I don't... That's not... Now, now, Aaron, you and I have met at Alps, is that right? That's right, yeah. Um, in uh, Vancouver, right? A that's right. And I think we went out to dinner together, right? Um, I don't, actually, I don't think we did. I think did, we just met at the conference. Did you not go with the, there was a big group that went out with Sarah Schindler and. No, I did not. Okay. Yeah. It was no. ca- catch as catch can, I guess. So. I try to, I try to limit my, uh, conference interactions to conference events and then, um, and then spend evenings, uh, you know, in, in relative isolation. I feel like it makes me more, uh, you know excited to talk to people during the day so you have to you have to kind of limit your exposure to human beings is what you're saying a little bit yeah, yeah. a little bit I've, I've i've noticed that about myself over the years it's well, what builds mystery knowing oneself <laughs> is, is 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 the most important thing right yeah L- learning how to hack yourself is, is kind of yeah like, absolutely yeah. yeah i just i think feeding oneself is more important than knowing oneself i'm, I'm willing <laughs> to put knowing in number two a feeding is number one for me oh okay which you can see. I mean, no, no I'm, actually, not, I'm li- obviously not poorly fed. Actually, the listeners can't. See. <laughs> but you can see. <laughs> That's true. I can see. Hi, Christian. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron I, I don't know if you're familiar with our ridiculous show or not, but. Um, I but- am. Okay. Well, the, 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 the guest portion is usually, uh, this is what people tune in for. So, uh, um, as, and I have to admit, so I was I was out a little bit late last night um, in Atlanta meeting with some alums. Uh, oh boy, what a great gathering! We'll probably talk about it in a little intro thing, Joe. Okay. So so the listeners will have already heard about this, right? But, um, but I'm a little a little froggy, a little groggy, a little tired this morning. Um, but I did manage to go through the F um, uh, the FCC, um, which is the thing that I read, Joe. Is it their the, the long thing? What is that? Uh, there was a, a March or a March order of a February vote. Uh, so the, the one I posted in our folder was the, the, uh, the 95 page version that I was actually cut way down from the 400 page version of the order that they released. Yeah. Cause the total document is 400 pages. That's, you know, the, the commission's opinion, the dissenting statements, um, uh, some of the regulatory analysis of, uh, you know, paperwork act and all that kind of jazz. So I cut it way back. I cut it down to 95 pages. Yeah. And I, I got through most of it. I mean, um, that's impressive. And it's well, <laughs> that you got through 95 pages this morning. Yeah. I was rushing. You were scanning kind I, of, well, no, you were catching reading, some ideas, read, read scan, but, 
Um, but this is a huge issue. We've you talked about smarties, so we've you talk- can read fast. No, no, not so much. But we, we've we've talked about this issue on the show twice before. Once with Jim Spetta, once with Christina Mulligan. It's right? true. This is all about net neutrality. Yep. Um, we're going to take another crack at it now that we actually have some some real grist for the mill in the form of this uh, right. regulation. And, and there are different parts of it. And I, I'm not sure, Aaron, what parts you're most interested in talking about. But the uh, you know there's the actual kind of technical issue, like what it means for end users. There is the issue of exact you know what are the what are the rules that the fcc is proposing or is adopting here uh not no longer proposing but is adopting right um uh there are three bright line rules and kind of one standard as far as i can tell and they don't address all of the problems that people have identified in discussion of this issue and then there's this question like this uh administrative law question about whether they have the authority and they're claiming authority to do this under various statutes uh, or various provisions in um at least two statutes right there's the yeah. Telecommunications Act and then the FCC Act, right? No, those are the same. But they're, they're those been, are the same. Yeah, see, this is the shows. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, look, look, just there's, the, there's the 1934 <laughs> Telecommunications Act. Okay, uh, uh, well, the 1934 Communications Act, as amended by the 1996 Act. That's what uh, I meant. And the 96 <laughs> Act added this section 706 that okay. is directed at specifically internet. Um, one of yeah. the few places in the 96 Act where Congress actually addressed internet phenomena. Most of the 96 Act is actually about very old stuff like telephony. Okay. Um, but which, the, is, which isn't the ability to read minds. <laughs> correct. <laughs> okay. All right. And so there, there's the issue of statutory authority. You know, that, look at these statutes. Does it, does it ha- you know, is the agency authorized to do things under the statute? Then right. there's also the issue of the fact that the, uh, the, the issue of the agency's changing its mind. It's doing something different now yeah. and diametrically opposed in a way to what it did before. It claimed right. it's doing that for a number of reasons, including the fact that te- technology has moved on. We're in a different world now, right? Yep. Um, and the D.C. Circuit had this case, Verizon, and so it's reconsidering things. So and there's this that. Di- this different thing is it's reclassifying what Internet service, what Internet access service, it, what kind of service it is. Yeah. Uh, because the way you categorize things under the act has big implications for the regulatory tools that you get to use to apply to that thing. You know, you categorized it this way, therefore you can take X and Y steps. All right. So let's, let's start with Aaron because, so you what know, what does Aaron want to talk about? Well, I, yeah, go ahead, Aaron. You, you tell us what you want to talk about. So, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that is, is most interesting is going and it's going to have the most immediate kind of implications for the inevitable uh, challenges to this order um, have to do with this question about classification. Um, this is the move that the FCC has been uh, very clearly avoiding for a long time now. Um, you know, the, the, the reason there's been this sort of long path to getting to the place where we are today is because the commission has moved in a very um, methodical, incremental sort of way. Uh, it has tried to To impose some net neutrality rules um, you know in various ways uh, and in ways that you know do not kind of flex the 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 full scope of its authority until uh this order today you know so they they were kind of pushed to this place by a um, you know set of of uh, of judicial decisions that kind of denied them the authority to do this in um, in a more restrained way. Um, and so I think it's, it's interesting that the commission has finally kind of taken this step to, to reclassifying 
uh, broadband internet service, not as an information service, which is uh, the, the classification they've been sticking to for over a decade now and, and finally calling it a, a telecommunication service. I think that story of how we got to that point is, is pretty interesting and, like I say, has, has major implications for uh, how the, this next round of appeals is going to go. Now, tell me if I got this right. So I, I think that's an interesting story, too, because as I read through it, I just can't believe the, the original classification as an information service raises all kinds of interesting issues. Like it, um, uh, it, you just as someone who has used the Internet, you just kind of marvel at, at the decision making. But um, uh, but the effect of this decision to classify it as a telecommunication service like regular telephones, you know, like Ma, uh, like, you know, the Ma Bell services and all that. Right. Uh, that uh, the, the reason this is a big deal is because this kind of brings out the big guns, because now you can regulate them as a common carrier. You can prevent them from um, from discriminating in a um, in a way that market actors normally discriminate among buyers and sellers. Uh, you know, they're they're now really they can be channeled into particular kinds of um, of, of publicly good ways of operating. And uh, as I as I understand it, uh, they kind of they, they f- finally turned to the big gun of reclassification, but they haven't fired all of the big bullets yet out of that big gun, right? Because they they've let's they, call forbearance. For, they've yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They engaged in forbearance. So we're gonna you're a common carrier basically as a telecommunications provider, and we have the power under that to like set rates and do all of these things that that uh, would make you op- operate in the public interest. But we're only going to do basically these three things, and then this additional standard that uh maybe flexibly looking. can yeah. you, in the future so i don't know aaron do you want to just get out what what those three things are right now the three bright line rules and why they're why they're important or uh yeah sure right so the the three kind of bright line rules here the first is that uh broadband internet access providers are prohibited from blocking uh content applications devices uh, that consumers want to use or want to access uh, so long as that content is lawful. And uh, that prohibition is subject to this sort of amorphous phrase, reasonable network management practices, which we should probably get back to and talk about exactly what those are. Number yeah, two, yeah let's, let's bracket that one for now, because it's, as I read that definition, it's kind of circular um and, and, have a and lot it's of going to affect about all it. of it yeah so, it's going to affect all of it yeah. but but for this let's just it, for each of these maybe we give an example so am i right in thinking that this would say you know that um a, a broadband supplier like comcast or one of these big companies who says you know what that like everyone's using this meerkat thing now to broadcast video and it's lots of traffic etc so we're just you can't use meerkat on our services right and then the question is going to be is that reasonable network management or is that illegal blocking. And that just depends on that definition of reasonable. But that's the kind of thing that they have in mind here, blocking a particular application or service or access to bit, the BitTorrent, to using the BitTorrent app, or maybe to accessing like the Pirate Bay website or something like blocking these things uh, could be illegal, depending on whether those services are legal uh, um, in and of themselves and whether blocking them is consistent with reasonable network management. Do I have that about right? Or you can yeah, think of other signal examples? No, I think that's a great example. And, you know, the, the question about lawful content itself is a really interesting question, right? Because um, this issue really came to the forefront of public attention when Comcast was blocking BitTorrent traffic, um, or actually it was, it was terminating um, BitTorrent traffic, right? So it was sort of spoofing the uh, user um, in a way that kind of uh, sent a signal that said, uh, you know, we don't want to engage in this file transfer any longer, right? Yeah. and 
you know, is BitTorrent legal or not? It sort of depends on who you ask, and it depends on what kind of use is being made of the protocol. There are lots of lawful ways to use BitTorrent, and there are plenty of popular unlawful ways of using BitTorrent. But, you know, introducing that concept of, of determining lawful from unlawful content um, in itself, I think, puts a lot of power and a lot of authority in the hands of, uh, of the broadband provider. So um, I think that's, that's another, uh, uh, another way that, that we might, um, you know, see that rule evaded. So we've got no blocking. Uh, we have a rule that says uh, no throttling, uh, also subject to reasonable network management practices. So no throttling means not only can you not block uh, Meerkat or Netflix or whatever it might be, but you, you can't degrade that service by uh, essentially treating uh, those packets as sort of second-class delivery, right, right. By, uh, by not... Uh, by not giving them the same sort of equal uh, uh, treatment uh, that you would provide to, uh, to any other traffic on the network. And that really has to be there because if that's not there, then the no blocking guarantee isn't really uh, – is, is a sort of a paper tiger, right? Because fine, I won't block, but I can throttle, so I can de facto block. So it seems to me if you're going to impose no blocking, you're, you're ba- you have to impose no throttling. Yeah, I think that's right. And and really the no paid prioritization rule, which is the other clear bright line rule, is sort of just the follow on uh, to, to what you just said, right? Because, you know, if we don't want them to block, if we don't want them to throttle, um, we need to have some rule in place that, that prevents effective throttling by only giving uh, high priority access or high priority delivery uh, to companies who are who are paying for that privilege right so that, that's sort of the flip side of throttling in a, in a sense now yeah. my personal experience with throttling is as um having an early at&t iphone plan you know when they were unlimited mm. um or quote unquote unlimited and this right. is something the fcc has been involved in otherwise yep. right it seems like each of these grows out of a set of paradigm cases and i'm wondering if this is one of the paradigm cases for throttling in addition to throttling i think BitTorrent traffic and other traffic i think that happen at some point i don't recall the example but uh so so what does unlimited mean you think it means unlimited but then you get um a lot of these companies verizon i think and at&t both had a policy that if you went over either over above a certain amount of uh a traffic like maybe five gigabytes in a month uh then they would degrade your they would throttle your service so suddenly you were no longer right you know at at that time i think it was 3g and then 4g and then lte but whatever the max was you were operating at at um, basically, uh, edge speeds or very right. slow speeds, and because they were trying other, to push you into a different plan. Y- yeah, and then other, others, uh, exactly. They were trying to push you into the paid plan, or they were just trying to manage. You know, this. Remember, AT and T had a terrible time providing adequate speed in San Francisco and New York and the right, bigger cities. Right, like right. There, there was a real problem with like building up capacity, and so yeah. they for a while they were. Um, uh, they they had a rule that I think if you were in the top like five percent, I forget what the percentage was, but they if you were in the top few percent, they would throttle you. So how would uh, so Aaron, if we would just want to think about the no throttling thing for a second, um, yeah, how would it deal, or how do you expect that that regulation would deal with an AT and T or Verizon policy about uh, throttling an unlimited plan? So I th- I think the situation that you just described falls most naturally actually actually under 
the transparency obligations that are imposed by the new rules, right? So in addition to these bright lines of no blocking or throttling or paid prioritization, um, broadband providers have to make information available to the public about the terms of their service. And that includes things like price and data caps. Um, so I think what you're calling throttling is probably is uh, more accurately thought of as a data cap. Um, and my sense is that the commission seems um, open to those sorts of, of uh, commercial restrictions on use so long as they are clearly communicated to consumers. So I don't actually think that that would fall under the the no throttling rule. Yeah, because it's uh, what it actually is is it's a it's a data cap enforced not by shutting off your access but through throttling. Right. And uh, so it is throttling. It's, you know, actually throttling, but it's not it's it's not the kind of throttling that's banned by the second bright line rule. Well, it's it, it, because if it's supported by a transparent disclosure, it's you can see how it could fairly be described as network management, that what we're trying to do is simply manage a network where some users are very high intensity users, some other users are low intensity users. And as long as there's transparent sort of billing to those users in that respect, then we're not trying to throttle as a way to de facto block someone we disfavor in order to privilege some company that's an affiliate of ours or something like that. We're just trying to manage the capacity issues we have. with the And network. you might not even need to get to that exception because the, um, although you could, I think that the, what's, what's banned is not throttling, but it's that you shall not impair or degrade lawful internet traffic on the basis of internet content application or service or use of a non-harmful device. Yeah, that, that data cap essentially functions as a kind of content-neutral right. way of throttling. Right. Um, and, it's, and it doesn't raise the same, um, it doesn't raise the same concern that, that it looks as if the access provider is trying to disfavor one entity because it's trying to favor an affiliate entity. Right. And that's the, there's this, this sort of, uh, exclusion a competition concept of of excluding a rival that kind of animates a lot of the thinking here i think at right least the way these rules are constructed it's using whatever market power you have in providing broadband to gain a foothold in some other in that sense it's well, very to, much tied to, to tying right to, to, it, you already have a foothold in that other market right you know it, i think if the world had worked out very differently and and the biggest isps didn't also happen to be some of the biggest content producers i think if the world had just worked out differently the some of these concerns wouldn't have arisen in this way but precisely because it's cable companies that are the biggest broadband internet access providers right well those cable companies like comcast are also content producers and content deliverers video deliverers and so they have a worry that you're going to use your internet connection that they're providing you to do something that won't be in comcast's interest as a traditional cable linear programming deliverer yeah right and that yeah. so that's what's animating a lot of this concern well aaron do you have so do you have an example of like a paradigmatic um uh, example of like bad paid prioritization and bad throttling that distinguishes those two rules a- an example that distinguishes between yeah like, like, uh, like what throttling and, and yeah exactly so what's what, what's an example of like bad of Paid priority, a bad paid prioritization that would run afoul of the rule, and then an example of a bad throttling. Like I, I have in mind, maybe um, Verizon decides that 
people are you know consuming too much Netflix or too much BitTorrent, and so they throttle. You can get it, but you only get it at 100 kilobytes per second, you know, rather than your full, you know, using using your full bandwidth. Um, uh, and that would be throttling, but paid prioritization is like we're going to deliver Netflix at at I don't know 20 megabits per second to do 4K video, um, but only if they pay us and and a competing service like maybe Amazon on demand or something because we don't have a deal with them, we're going to you know we're not going to give them the good stuff. And maybe that doesn't involve throttling, or, or does does paid prioritization necessarily involve throttling, or how does that how does that work? Well, I, I think it, you know the, the reason I see those two rules as sort of corollaries of each other is that you know it, it all depends on where you're setting the baseline, right? So um, you know you can you can uh, set the baseline in um, you know in a manner. Uh, that sort of creates this false scarcity, right? Where um, providers are in a position where they're sort of, you know, creating uh, these bottlenecks by setting a low baseline level of service where throttling isn't necessary because, you know, the level of service is low enough that you've created this incentive uh, for, for paid prioritization for these to get the kind of quality of service that say Netflix needs to satisfy its customers. And, you know, in a way we're trying to, I think these rules are kind of trying to avoid having a situation on the internet that looks like airline priority boarding, right? Where we're not actually trying to find the most efficient way to get people on and off of the plane because, by doing it inefficiently, we create a market for people who are willing to pay to avoid uh, uh, that sort of uh, that bottleneck. Um, so I think those two rules are, are pretty closely related to each other. But the the rules don't do things that you, you might have um, wanted. I mean, or that con- consumer groups might have wanted. I mean, it doesn't involve rate regulation. Uh, the rules don't involve. Uh, what was the other example of the key thing? Like you're thinking, uh, like so the one the one thing the rules don't do that that might be really useful uh, is uh, imposing some sort of unbundling obligations. Yeah, that's uh, what I was thinking of. Yeah, it's, explain what that is. What is that? Once you have uh, entered the world of of Title Two of the Communications Act, and we are applying these kinds of uh, you know, common carrier um, uh, regulations. Common carriers have an obligation to provide elements of their physical infrastructure, of their network. Um, you know, opening up their facilities to competitors, and those competitors can pay essentially kind of wholesale rates for access to that physical infrastructure. This was like the state of affairs for. DSL internet service prior to, to 2005 when the FCC decided to reclassify uh, um, DSL from a telecommunication service to an information service. When it was a telecommunication service regulated under Title II, that meant we had lots and lots of competition over the same set of copper wire, right? Maybe AT&T owned that physical infrastructure, but they had to provide access to it uh, to competitors. So, you know, I think there's probably a, a, a contingent of um, consumer advocates who would have liked to have seen the FCC, this gets back to that issue of forbearance, not forbear when it comes to that unbundling uh, to open up these networks, um, this cable infrastructure for more uh, competitive offerings. Even though they're using the same infrastructure, you could see different kinds of pricing plans. You could see 
um, you know, uh, companies that are you know uh, more efficient in various ways, um, and and so that is, I think, a, a legitimate um, uh, you know point of of contention. I don't know that uh, unbundling in that last mile is necessarily the right way to go, but I think it's it's certainly worth considering. The track record on on unbundling it, it that developed in the from the mid nineties to the mid to mid aughts. Uh, in mid two thousands, um, fr- frankly, isn't very good. Uh, the it, it was within the telephone domain, um, and the effort to get the local exchange carriers. So, so we're thinking, you know, the Bell system gets broken up in the mid eighties. It's still not very competitive for local exchange by the mid nineties. Congress says, you know, we need to inject more competition into this marketplace. The way we're going to do that is we're going to do a range of things. One of those things is going to be the unbundling of network elements that Aaron just described. Okay. And, and over a decade of relentless complex litigation among all the people involved, um, basically the, the unbundling process was a flop. It, it really never, I think, amounted to all that much. Uh, what did work uh, was two things that Congress didn't anticipate as much, which is the rise of wireless as an alternate way to engage in telephone. Yeah. The rise of cable delivered telephone service. Voiceover. So techno- technologically derived intermodal substitutes, right? Right. Wound up being a much more significant way to break open the market for local phone service. Free markets, Joe. And I would say the third thing is that the effort on the part of the local exchange companies to break into long distance turned out to be much more successful than the effort of competing local exchange carriers to break in on a on a facilities basis using these network elements. So if you look at that track record and you ask yourself, how well is using unbundling going to work? Yeah. Um, the phone experience suggests it's not going to work very well without a much more concerted effort. And uh, and it's going to still take a lot of litigation, a lot of yeah. time, a lot of effort, and it still might not work. Let, let me represent the naive consumer here, uh, which I am, and, and just ask you guys, like, so here's my dream, right? My dream is that I what I want to buy is a certain speed of Internet access at a certain monthly cap or something like that, right? Yep. And, and maybe I want that monthly cap to be so high I don't think about it. But, you know, so I want to consume, maybe I want 100 megabits per second or 200 megabits, megabit, megabits per second, and I want not to even think about hitting my cap, right? Okay. So, And so what I want is to be able to go into the market and buy that thing. I want, to, yep. I want to pay for the speed and I want to pay the lowest price I can for that speed. I don't need I don't need email addresses from this. I don't need websites. I don't need any of that <laughs> crap, right? And in fact, I don't even need uh, domain name service because uh, 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 I can use my own DNS server, which, you know, this is the thing that translates between the little internet numbers and the names, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. cable companies have traditionally provided that. You know, yeah. your ISP has tr- traditionally provided that. So I don't need any of that stuff. All I want is your wire and your guaranteed uh, bandwidth. And I want you guys to compete on that. You know, the reliability of that service sure. and the price of that service. Sure. And and so I don't want, I don't, I'm not interested in your triple play package. I'm not interested in your like, you know, movies plus whatever. I'm not interested in all the, all these bundles. Like, so what you're saying, what I hear you saying, Joe, is that based on our experience in the telephone industry, it's really hard to get to that place through regulation. Um, and, and I shouldn't be hopeful of getting there through regulation alone. No, is that- I, no I think, no, I didn't say that. Um, I, I said the unbundling strategy in particular 
uh, didn't work out very well um, as a as a strategy. There might be other regulatory strategies that that would work well. I'm just saying the one particular one we were talking about called unbundling, um, which is what the statute already gives the FCC the power to do, yeah. um, didn't work particularly well. I, I think I, the affirmative thing I would say is um, that what you really want, as you just said, is to have firms competing. And the way to get firms competing is get multiple different types of firms offering you the service. What we really need is to have lots more mobile bra- broadband providers so they're coming in off a different mode. They're wireless instead of cable coaxial wired. But under these regs, right, Aaron, I, either of you, I mean, uh, under under this authority, the FCC could require um, the the people who own the copper wire, the last mile copper wires into your house or fiber or whatever it is, to provide access to those lines at cost to competing firms, right? Yeah, they could, right? So this is in like text section 251 uh, of the act, Um <laughs> This is an obligation, and it's an obligation that the FCC had to, you know, go out of its way to to apply forbearance here to make sure that that obligation to unbundle didn't apply to broadband uh, internet access providers. And I think I think Joe's absolutely right that part of the competitive mix has to be uh, various kinds of transmission. Right? We don't just want coaxial cable. We don't want just in twisted pair coppered wire. We want wireless. We want lots of different options out there uh, in the market. And I think that's true. Um, and, and he's right that unbundling has not proven to be a huge, uh, a huge success uh, in, in the past. Now, there might be reasons to think that unbundling might work a little bit differently in this market if, if the commission hadn't applied forbearance, right? You know, I don't know. It depends on a lot of things about the, the cable internet market that we don't really have access to. What are the margins like? Um, is there room to be profitable and, and provide you that service that you're asking for at a price that is significantly lower than what the, you know, the local uh, cable monopoly is providing that service at today? If, the, you know, if Comcast or Time Warner or whoever your cable company is, is making enough of a profit, uh, there would be an incentive, I think, to to rely on unbundling to get into the market by by new entrants and try to undercut those prices. I suspect that's true, but I, I frankly don't know the answer to that question. I would, given my bill, I would be shocked if it weren't true. <laughs> but uh, but but it could be. You know, you, it's it's hard to know. Um, right. The wire is already there. It depends on how you do the cost accounting and all that. Um, but can you can you guys just tell me? Uh, I, I think you already did, Joe. But I just you know I'm thick I'm thick scold with this kind of stuff. What exactly um, physically would the unbundling requirement be on? What would a cable company have to do if it were subject to a generic unbundling requirement? Um, so we can think about lots of different elements of this physical infrastructure, right? So you know you can think about you know the wires that are leading into your home. Uh, you can think about, uh, you know, in the telephone context, uh, you know, the, the switches that are a, a component of, uh, of the telephone network. And the unbundling requirements that, that, are, that are in the Act are incredibly flexible in terms of allowing these new market entrants to pick and choose which pieces of the physical infrastructure they want to kind of, you know, ride on top of, uh, of the incumbent and which pieces they think they can do a better job of building out on their own. So there's, there's a great degree of, of flexibility in terms of 
uh, how much of that infrastructure they want to they want to use. Yeah, it's uh, you know, uh, it's not um, uh, unbundled elements. Uh, you know, elements is plural. There are <laughs> there are many different elements between the 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 Wi-Fi router in your house and um, the the technology that's at Charter. Um, and and all the steps in between, gathering cable together in the neighborhood, gathering the neighborhoods together at larger locations of these cable head ends. And, you know, yeah, at any one of those places, a person could say, a firm could say, well, you know, we think we can do this on our own, but we would need your element as a piece of the puzzle to get it to get it completed. Right. Right. And then individual companies would be making individual bets about how well they could do to get that slice or this other slice combined with their own stuff to make it work. Yeah. So the FCC is saying we're not going to do that at right. this point um, because maybe we don't know how to do it. We're not sure if it's necessary. There there are some downsides to doing that. And same with rate regulation, right? This is a fast-changing field. There are lots of new kinds of technologies, both wireless and wired, which are coming online. Lots of invest in, investments in infrastructure it would be a wickedly hard problem to figure out what those rates should be. Right. So we're going to forbear that as well. Let's go back to those. But even the, the simple things that they're doing, the, the no throttling, no, no blocking, no, no uh, price discrimination, you know, uh, um, price controls. Um, what's, what's the phrase again? Price what? Pa- paid prioritization. Paid prioritization, yeah. Um, and, then, and then the generic forward-looking standard. Like, in order to get those, because of the Verizon decision and, and maybe a few others, uh, they had to make this change, right? To, they had to locate a new source of authority, which, revo- which involved revising their classification of broadband providers and wireless broadband providers as telecommunications providers rather than information service providers. Yep. And I want to go back to that. There was a 2002 decision by the FCC, which says, you know, uh, broadband providers are in fact information service providers. And here's why. And I want to go into those reasons because they're remarkable to me. Uh, and then a 2007 decision, which is in some ways more remarkable, uh, applying to wireless providers and saying, you know what, these guys are information service providers too. They're not. Um, uh, telecommunications providers. Um, so, so do we want to take the 2002 one first? Like, why do we ever go down this road of thinking that broadband provision was was different in kind than standard kind of telephone interconnection, right? So why is it, why is it an information service prov- uh, a provision or why did they think it was? What does that mean? Um, and, and then we can get into why, I mean, why that my naive view is that that's crazy. It's nuts and it caused all kinds of problems. But like, what, what do you guys think? So it, it's probably helpful. It's probably helpful to start with what these definitions are of these two kinds of services, right? So, um, the, the 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 distinction here is being between telecommunication services, which is essentially the transport uh, of information, right? The connection of uh, of users on a network and moving information from point A to point B, right? That is contrasted with information services. Information services. Um, require sort of more uh, uh, proactive intervention with the information, right? We're talking about generating or storing or in some way kind of processing uh, information, manipulating it in some way. Uh, so it's not just transport from point A to point B, but, but you're doing something actively uh, with that information. And this is a distinction that, that goes back um, you know, in one form or another to the FCC's computer inquiries that started back in, uh, in the 1960s. Um, so when it comes to cable uh, broadband 
service. Part of the interesting thing about this story is it wasn't really the FCC that took the first crack at answering this question about whether cable internet service was a telecommunication service or an information service. The Ninth Circuit actually got the first opportunity to answer that question in this case, uh, AT&T versus uh, City of Portland. Uh, and there the Ninth Circuit says, well, it's sort of both, right? It's sort of telecom and information, right? It's about moving data, but it's also in part about kind of processing data and offering these enhanced services, right? You sign up with Comcast and they give you an email address or they give you a, a homepage or, you know, they give you uh, arguably, uh, you know, their their DNS uh, uh, server is um, categorized in this information service uh, uh, bucket, right? So um, the Ninth Circuit makes this determination. The FCC comes along a couple of years later in this declaratory ruling and says, no, the Ninth Circuit is actually wrong here. Cable internet is not a telecommunication service. It's an information service. Um, of course, it entails some kind of transport, right? Um, you know, there's some component of the package that you buy from Comcast that is telecommunications, but that product isn't sold separately from the rest of the sort of bells and whistles that we put together for you. Your email address, your homepage, your, uh, you know, your firewall, your antivirus software, all of that stuff is sold as a package. You can't buy just the transport function. You've got to buy the whole thing. Therefore, uh, it's an information service. So that's, that's sort of the basic reasoning there. So you can't you can't buy just the uh, transport mechanism without buying all of the crapware that the companies sell you with it, right? The email, which is weird, the home, the web page stuff, which is bad, the antivirus stuff, which is probably useless. Like, so they they have all these things that they sell you that 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 you know only maybe the most you know novice of users would think about using for the most part. Um, why should the decision of the company to bundle internet-related things with their information transport mechanism change our regulatory approach to their sale of the transport mechanism? You see, I mean, that, 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 uh, that analysis puts all of the power over how the transport mechanism is regulated in the company that maintains that because they can always gen up, you know, new kinds of information. You know, they can make homepages. They can make other things. Uh, and so they do badly, um, but it doesn't really matter, right? Because they, and in fact, I do wonder whether these services either initially existed or at the very least were continued in part to gain this favorable regulatory treatment. So I, I have to I have to say, like looking at it today, I, I, I agree with you. It looks sort of ridiculous uh, to make this kind of argument that, well, we give you a free email address, therefore we escape uh, this, uh, this common carrier uh, regulation. If you think back to the time, and this is the argument that the FCC tries to make in the order, you know, the way we use the Internet has changed. And maybe it hasn't changed so greatly in 2000 and since you know, 2007 and now. But think back to the earlier days of the Internet. Um, and, you know, the FCC moves pretty slowly uh, in its thinking. So, you know, you think back to when people were subscribing to AOL and CompuServe, Right. Those weren't services that were primarily about transport, right? Those sort of walled garden services were about giving you a fully formed 
uh, independent kind of networked community to operate within. People who didn't use the web, right? They, they used AOL keywords to navigate and find information. If you want to call AOL an information service when people are using it in that way, I think there's some logic to that. I think that makes some sense. We move more and more away from that model, right? So, you know, when the FCC issues this declaratory ruling, I think that was in 2003, which doesn't sound that long ago, but Gmail didn't even exist at that point, right? Um, so I think the way we use the internet has has changed um, pretty significantly. To your To your point about whether the regulated entity should be in the position to choose what kind of regulation uh, it is subject to, I think that is problematic. And we don't let the telephone company escape common carrier regulation because they say, well, you know, we offer voicemail, you know, right. Uh, right. voicemail is not about transport. It's about manipulating uh, story and information. And we've decided to bundle voicemail with our basic local phone service. Therefore, guess what, FCC? Uh, you can't regulate us this way anymore. Like, we would never uh, countenance that sort of argument. And I think in part, you know, the, the change in course in, in the order is the FCC recognizing, look, you can't, uh, you can't add on these sort of ancillary services that nobody really wants and nobody really uses purely as a way to, to escape regulation. The, the, um, the history here that, that Aaron has referenced is also, I think, really important because the, the computer inquiries in the, in the 60s and 70s that, that kind of shaped some of these legal categories, information service, think of it as data service and, and, uh, telecommunications service, you think of it as voice service. I mean, there was a time when the technological platforms here were profoundly different, right? You had a telephone network, the sort of public switch telephone network, which is circuits that connect individual callers at two ends of a call, where circuit is dedicated to carrying that call for those people and a very different infrastructure that's involved in providing computer-based data processing services that are that can connect to the phone network but aren't fundamentally and integrally part of the phone network that all changes of course right as the technology moves so that more and more of the traditional phone stuff is implemented on a computer platform once it's all bits these distinctions info service uh, telecommunication service sounds hokey and 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 weird and maybe even perverse where someone could pick their own regulator right, right. um but that's to I, I think that is to simply ignore the fact that it telecommunications is as much like a faulkner novel as anything else right the, the past isn't dead it isn't even past okay yeah. these categories are the are we're dealing with things that have been decades in the making but your your major point here is that uh is that it makes more sense when features are implemented in physical stuff rather than through logic alone right so if you can implement a feat uh, an add-on feature through logic alone then you can always gin up your own regulation that way, right? Yeah, and, and in the converged world where the same computer platforms are being used to do all these things, we have to be vigilant against 
people choosing their own regulatory bucket in just the way you've yeah. said, right? But there was a time when that when that wasn't you couldn't just choose because right. you were running a fundamentally different kind of business yes, with let, fundamentally different equipment, and so we're you know we're sort of adjusting as we go. Let me push a little bit though because I don't want to let the FCC in two thousand and two two thousand and three off the hook because. Because I, you know, when I think of the early days of the internet, I'm thinking, uh, well, I mean, you could go all the way back, but when I'm thinking of when people first started to uh, have email addresses, especially, you know, universities and stuff, and then later at home and dial up, this is 1994, 1996, and, you know, you know, the NCSA Mosaic, and then Netscape, and then Internet Explorer, and that whole story, right, happens in the mid 90s, uh, early, early to mid 90s. 2002, 2003 is after the first dot-com bust, right? This was after the Super Bowl with all the dot-com ads, after Pets.com went belly up, right? So um, th- this was, I, at that time, I just don't, I think the CompuServe, you know, and I subscribed to CompuServe as a kid back in the day, right? And it was it's exactly what you say. You, 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 you dial up and you have access to a bunch of apps that they provide, right? They provide right. apps and that's it, right? You use their apps. Yep. Uh, and their apps were networked, and that was what was distinctive about them rather than, you know, uh, just on your machine. Um, but nobody really, you know, there was AOL, but I think in 2002, 2003, AOL had become basically a dial-up service, right? Um, I, I, you know, and maybe they had some apps that they provided too. Um, I don't know, and that is a more complicated category. But I think it, you know, my memory, 2002, 2003, I don't think of that as the early days of the internet. It was earlier. I think it's maybe the early days of social um interaction on the internet 2002 Uh, is 10 years after congress says the national science foundation can allow commerce on the internet it's 10 years mm -hmm. so you know is that is that still uh so early that maybe they can be forgiven for a blunder is it already so late that they're showing themselves to be so timid as to be cringy and horrible, you know, horribly embarrassing. Uh, you know, your mileage may vary. Well, I, I'm just pushing oh, back. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just pushing back on the idea. So in, in 2003, when this thing gets, when, when, when we say, no, this is an information uh, service provision thing, because not only are they providing you with the pipes, they're also providing you with a, a homepage, which is what they're called at that time, right. uh, an email address, DNS, antivirus, which you, you know, you shouldn't have anyway, probably, and a bunch of other stuff. I, at that time, I think that was a huge giveaway uh, to the industry at a time when everyone should have known better, right? Uh, that that I, I if, it had been 19, if it had been 1996 or 98, then I would be more inclined to, to, to agree with what Aaron had just said, right? Is that there was a real hodgepodge. But um, anyway, sorry, Aaron, to interrupt. No, no. So I, I should make clear that I don't actually believe the argument that I just made. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's trying to sort of characterize uh, the FCC's decision making in the most positive light possible. And, you know, then, of course, like the regulator here is a little bit behind the times. Um, but part of this, I think, is also driven by the fact that, you know, the FCC... Um, is operating within the framework created by the 1996 Act. The 1996 Act was largely deregulatory in nature. Um, we still, you know, even though the way we use the internet had changed by 2003, uh, you know, I still think there was a a, a deep commitment uh, in a lot of places to this idea that the internet needs to remain a place free of government regulation, free of government interference. Um, you know, that's a lot of what we hear from the, uh, the dissenting, um, 
members of the FCC today that you know that, that we should we should fear the idea of the government meddling in this space that should remain uh, unregulated. And I think the FCC was definitely still buying into that way of of thinking in this you know 2003 timeframe. So. It may have been a, a giveaway to the industry. It may have also been, you know, kind of a reflection of, of this, of a commitment to an ideal of the unregulated Internet. Or at the very least, kind of appropriate caution, you know, in light. And, and that, that, that prudence, that seems to me reasonable because the dot-com, like I just said, the dot-com bubble had burst for the first time. What was it, like 2000, um, 2001? And... So it, exactly how to promote this new platform of commerce and, and social advancement, I think was really unclear. So I can totally understand a desire to be prudent and not to, uh, uh, to, to, to govern it. I guess what's interesting is that the reasons that they gave, because the statute would seem to say they need to, you know, you need to categorize these things as telecommunications entities. And they found a way maybe to use the statute to say not, but in a way that seemed to me really un, unreasonable looking back at it. Um, and now they've changed their view, right? They say, well, in light of a better understanding of the most current facts, uh, a better way to categorize it is as a telecommunications. And service. I understand why they have to say, like, the, the story for the FCC, the regulatory story, which, which has to give reasons why you're changing your mind, right? Yeah. Like, that, that, that story looks better for them if they can say that the 2002 decision was reasonable based on the facts at the time, Right. Uh, it's oh. true that things have changed, but in fact, with respect to the statutory reasons for regulation, like it seems to me for, for characterizing it as on, as a information provider or telecommunications provider, in my mind, those reasons have not changed between 2002 and 2015. There, of, of course, like the way we use the internet has changed. The, the, the reasons that a person might have for wanting the FCC to exercise this authority are different. The reasons you might want, want to have for them to forbear entirely, uh, uh, I think have gone away because there are other harms now. We're, we're just as worried about the regu- more worried maybe about regulation of the internet by Verizon and AT and T than we are by the FCC, at least under these modest steps, right? So all that's changed. But those reasons, while we're more comfortable now, don't seem to me to track a change in facts which apply to these particular reasons because the reasons were not compelling in two thousand and two, two thousand and three. In other words, your reasons for thinking this is okay now, and 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 if you have a if you had reasons in two thousand and two and two thousand and three for saying now's not the time to regulate the internet, I think those reasons were not statutory at that time. Every once in a while, um, someone will mention some fact about AOL, and part of me is surprised they still exist, and I think they actually do still exist. But yeah, there's still a bunch of dial-up customers. Right. Yeah. Ah, thank you. You just made my point, which okay. is that so part of this reasons. Uh, and are they good reasons or bad reasons? Is you're you're assuming a model about who the 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 sort of median user is and what their circumstances are. And I think in 2002, if we went back and saw, you know, how many people are accessing the internet in a dial-up connection, where the model looks more like this older model of doing stuff, I, I bet the percentage then was still pretty high. So if you're thinking, oh, they need to be choosing regulatory categories based on the, 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 the needs and behaviors of the most advanced users. I think that's one approach you, you could take, but I, I don't know that it's the approach they took. Has the FCC not gathered any data on that? Oh, I, I mean, think they have lots of data. My casual inference here is that in 2002, 2003, the, the user, even with like AOL dial-up or even with, you know, just um, dial-up service of any kind, 
thought of the internet as their internet explorer. Like if they couldn't get to the internet, they would say, my internet explorer isn't working, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think even then the browser was the window. Mm, It's not mm. like you were using like Time Warner provided apps. Right. Uh, And to the extent you were, this is the worry, right? And especially on mobile devices, because I think they saw this coming. Like all of those horrible apps that they provide, those horrible windows, like how much of that was driven by a desire to avoid regulation in order to secure monopoly rents for the, like that's, you know, that's really the tail wagging the dog, right? How much of that was there? Aaron, do you have a view on that? I mean, do you think, how much do you think maybe the really horrible experience of some of these applications was in order to avoid this kind of regulation or in the worst case scenario, which has not arisen for them, uh, like rate regulation? You know, I don't know. I think it's hard to, uh, it's difficult to uh, underestimate the uh, just kind of sheer uh, incompetence of uh, monopoly (laughs) providers, right? Right. Uh, The reason those experiences were bad is because these are companies that like, you know, don't necessarily have particularly strong incentives to make sure that their webmail interface is, you know, is really cutting edge or that, you know, <laughs> you know, this goes back to the, this, the, the lack of, of competition in, uh, in this market, I think. I don't really know. I mean, were people adding those services on because they thought consumers wanted them? Uh, or because they were trying to sort of game the system here? I really, I really don't know. Um, it's, it's a hard question to answer without having kind of, you know, been there for those, those debates and discussions at the time. I mean, just looking at them, it doesn't seem like any company could have been possibly trying to compete based on those services, right? That said, a lot of people have cable company email addresses. Um, Yeah. But those companies weren't trying to compete. Yeah. Well, so here, so the better example of how crappy things can look when you, you compete is, you know user interfaces in automobiles like the uh, the market for automobiles is very competitive right a ton of the user interface stuff including new newer computer-based interface stuff is terrible sure they're competing it's still awful (laughs) so people do so part of the reason stuff is awful is because people do stupid shit and make awful shit sometimes right I mean, well, it's, because, so because people, it's make not, bad, people just make bad decisions because they don't have they don't have competitive pressure on that dimension. Like if there's competitive pressure on that dimension, even if there is competitive, pre- there's that. But even if there is some competitive pressure on that dimension, you know, some stuff is bad and some stuff is good. And one of the things competition does is over the long run, the bad stuff gets pushed out of the system and the good stuff where good means stuff people actually will want and seek out tends to prevail. Competition doesn't prevent bad stuff from happening. It makes it last less time. Hmm. And there's there's right? little reason to expect your phone company, your cable company, or your car company to be really great at user interface design, right? I mean that that is not um, where they have that's made very the majority true. of their profits, and that's not where they've really developed expertise. So it, it doesn't shock me that that even when they're trying hard, they might not uh, succeed in 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 that sense. Well, yeah, they just haven't invested in building up competence in their, that area. It's not what it's not part. It hasn't been part of their stack, you know, um, and but that's changing. Right. So now, you know, Tesla's got an interface, which is different. There's rumors about an Apple car and, and Microsoft has tried to make advances. I think they didn't they have a deal with Ford where they tried to put something in, uh, you know, like we said before on the show, like any you, if you can think of anything in your life that you pay for that would be better if it if there if it were a computer. Like 
eventually it's going to be a computer and people who have <laughs> right. software expertise are going to take all of the profits in that industry because that because that it's the smarts and the uh, and the ease of use will eventually be the the, the the signal characteristic to consumers right yeah um and it's just going to happen to everything um but that said you know i so what was the re- you know if you think about like cable companies why do they provide these terrible antivirus things which probably made things worse rather than better a lot of it is it because they wanted to appeal to customers who might not get the marginal customer who was like on the fence about getting internet service at all, but had heard about these bad things that can happen to you on the mm. internet. Mm. And so don't worry, you know, we've got you covered. I mean, that's, that would be a reason for providing a service, which is kind of sucky because it doesn't matter anyway, you think, right? Um, or is it really, and, and I just, you know, this is maybe empirical, maybe it's like anthropological. I don't know how you would study this. Or is it that we need this constellation of services because this is the basis that is the firewall between us and rate regulation at, at worst. And I don't know. I, you know, I, yeah. So, I mean, we're all of all of those other bells and whistles, sort of a justification after the fact they're trying to make this argument to the FCC about classification and they're looking at their service and saying, okay, what can we do here to, to, uh, to, you know, give the, the commission some reason, uh, some sort of statutory out for calling us an information service. Well, we've got these email addresses we give people or were they more sort of forward-looking and plan their service with this fight in mind? And I, I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that question. My, my hypothesis is that a lot of these services, you know, in the early days of Internet uh, access provision, they thought, well, we need to provide an email address. We need to provide an easy way to make a homepage. We need to provide antivirus. Like, they, they may have started off, you know, as, as differentiating features or reasons to entice non-Internet users to use the Internet. Right. Um, but the the question is, why did they hang on so long after it was clear that they were utterly horrible, uh, <laughs> right? And when, and because because you know if I were trying, you know, if you were just going to create your own company and you actually had copper wire going to everybody's house, you might like strike a deal with Google for Gmail, or you would do something. There are all kinds of things you might do to provide the best possible uh, experience because that's what you're selling: right. internet experience. And you want to sell faster and faster, more expensive internet, maybe uh, depending on what your margins are. Uh, you wouldn't. So I think the story is not necessarily why were they were they created in order to get this exception. I don't. I my hypothesis would be no, but my hypothesis would be that maybe they hung on uh, in order to preserve that you because know, they had this other function, which was earning a regulatory categorization that the person yeah. that the firm felt was more favorable. So to in, them. in two thousand and five, at a Comcast board meeting, and you're the one who says, "Look, I look at these. These are terrible services. Like, why do we provide it? We should just get rid of them." Right. What is the what is the reason why everyone else is going to look at me and say, "You idiot! We can't get rid of these." I I don't think it's because it would. I don't think they would lose any money from customers if they didn't provide these things, right? If yeah, they yeah. I think, channeled. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say. I think you're right. I mean, after 2003, once we've got the regulatory scheme in place and we know, you know, how you avoid, um, you know, uh, telecommunication service status. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. That has to be. Uh, looming large in the minds of these companies that we have to keep providing this stuff because it gives us this advantage. Um, Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And to strip it away would hasten the day when someone says, oh, you know what, we can actually now just go, we can just treat you now as common carriers. Like if you strip that stuff away, you're just making that day arrive faster. Because that was the only reason. That (laughs) That was the only reason that they weren't called that to begin with right that they weren't classified that way to begin with is because they were providing they, they were like a hybrid they of, were an informational content provider yeah. an informational tool provider and 
the fact that they that that's not actually their business becomes apparent when they drop them by the wayside. So they so they don't do it. That would be the the hypothesis. Now, let me let me ask a different kind of question. If you guys do, you guys think these regulations will hold up? I'm looking through this. At the the FCC seems to have gone, you know, uh, in the document that we'll link up in the show notes. If you want to take a look at it, they go through and they talk about their statutory authority with respect to each of these. And they for each of these bright line rules, they have several different possible statutory hooks, and they talk about. Uh, why they think it will hold up and what justifies it and, and all of that just as a top line matter. And then maybe we can dig into parts of this that you guys find interesting. Uh, will these hold up in either in total or in, uh, or in uh, bulk, if not, if not in part, I think the FCC is in a really strong position here. Um, you know, they, this issue of classification as a telecommunication service or information service has, has been to the Supreme court already. Uh, a case called Brand X, um, and uh, in Brand X, the Supreme Court, you know, applies Chevron. Um, is very deferential to the FCC when it makes this determination that we probably all agree is wrong. That uh, internet service is an information service. Uh, you get a sense that if not every member of the court, a majority of the court agrees that they would have reached the opposite conclusion. They would have called it a telecommunication service, but they say, look, you've got reasons, uh, you have expertise, and there's ambiguity in the statute. So the FCC has discretion here to make this determination, even though we have a sense that you probably screwed this up and it should be considered a, a telecommunication service. Um, you know, there's a, a, a dissent in Brand X written by Scalia and joined by two other justices, I think maybe Ginsburg and Souter. Uh, and Scalia says, what are you talking about, right? This interpretation of the statute makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, there's no way that this is an information service. It's a telecommunication service. And the rest of the court is willing to ignore the fact that you got this wrong. But I'm not so deferential. I don't see you know, this as a reasonable interpretation uh, of the statute. So um, even putting the sort of deference issue aside, you know, of course, the composition of the court has changed a bit. But you know, I think when it comes to the classification question, I have a really hard time imagining a court um, you know, finding that the FCC has has misstepped here, at least when it comes to classification. There are other issues um, that I think are potentially, um, you know, could potentially trip up uh, the FCC uh, on review. But on this basic issue of telecommunications versus information service, I think they're on pretty strong footing. I mean, the Supreme Court in Brand X told them. You know, look, you've got an ongoing obligation to, you know, review this classification as the facts change. You should be open to changing the classification as administrations change. You should be open to changing uh, this classification. Right. Which is in some ways responsive to the uh, uh, the allegations that there's been some kind of uh, undue influence by uh, the Obama administration on the FCC. So I, I don't know. I don't I don't see this as a particularly tough call, at least on that narrow question of classification. And the D.C. Circuit's decision in 2014 in the, in the Verizon case, I think, just makes it all, up, all the stronger. 
Um, I mean, I think Aaron's exactly right about Brandex, but but the DC Circuit in the Verizon case, where they rejected the prior iteration of these open internet rules, to say, well, you know, if 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 you, if they had been classified as telecom services, this would look different, but you haven't classified them that way, and the st- Section Seven Hundred Six gets you gets you a little bit of the way, but not all the way there. Like, well, okay, now we've reclassified it. So now 706 and and the way we've classified it point all together and create this very plain authority uh, that we have to regulate. So here we go. So I, I read through a, a lot of, I didn't, you know, skimmed quite a bit, but I read through a lot of the uh, FCC's responses to kind of possible arguments about why they might lack authority and why they think they have discretion and why they think the statute means what it does. And and most of the industry arguments that they cover against um against this uh, and in favor of certain statutory readings seem to me not so great, most of them. Um, some of them are maybe closer questions, but with the application of of what you guys have talked about, the Chevron deference doctrine, the doctrine that you have to defer to agencies uh, uh, when the statute is ambiguous, um, would seem to take care of it. There's one possible exception I want to get your guys' thoughts on, because um, uh, these are regulations which classify broadband internet providers, whether mobile or, you know, landline uh, you know, fixed uh, uh, as telecommunications providers and therefore subject to these three bright line rules and the other rule and potentially in the long run rate regulation. I mean, uh, you know, it's once you're classified that way, they may decide in the future not to forbear as much. But the, the point is that these, this new breed of regulation uh, applies to both mobile and 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 non-mobile. And as to mobile, it yeah, does all seem- broadband access, not just fixed broadband access. Right. Correct. But um, for, in order for mobile uh, networks to be um, classified that way there's another so let me see where it is in here um uh, a commun- uh, so the communication act defines commercial mobile service as any mobile service that is provided for profit and makes interconnected service available a to the public or b to some other group right uh, and so in order to get where they want to go they have to show that um mobile broadband fits into that right and um rather than private mobile radio service correct right and and so in order to do that they have to show that like internet interconnected service means uh it, well it's defined actually inter, inter, under the statute interconnected service means service that is interconnected with the public switch network as such terms are defined by regulation blah 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 right so what is public switch network well here they're going to conclude that it is the internet they, that the internet is a public switch network and the claim of the industry is that that means basically the traditional telephone network Right. And that it goes too far to reclassify the public uh, to define the Internet as a public switch network or the public switch network. And they make kind of two arguments. One is that statutory argument, then back to interpretation of the statute and what Congress might have meant by that. And, and that they had a very they, they meant public uh, te- telephony switch network or something like that, switch telephony network. But they also say this is beyond the notice of proposed rulemaking, that they didn't get adequate notice that they mm. were going to do this because, you know, this is a. Uh, it is, is a big thing and they didn't notice that they were and, and of course the agency justifies this by saying or the commission justifies it by saying this is a logical outgrowth of what we proposed in the rules that we wouldn't have been able to regulate uh in in the way that we were asking about without visiting this and so you kind of should have known uh it, it should have been apparent to all commenters that we were possibly going to revisit this issue okay so that's a, a whirlwind through the issue but this is the, this is one that stuck out a, a, to me as a possible non-frivolous ground uh either on the notice angle or on congressional intent behind what a switch network is and maybe you guys can provide me some either reason 
not to worry about that or, or uh, why that language clearly does embrace the internet? I mean, what do you guys think about it? So I agree. I think this is the strongest potential challenge they have. Uh, when I read the order for the first time and got to this part, um, especially, you know, when, we, when, when, when you're talking about it from the notice angle, I was genuinely surprised by this. Um, you know, this was, this was not something that I, um, you know, and, you know, maybe, maybe I just wasn't uh, thinking hard enough or wasn't uh, uh, particularly good at making these sorts of predictions, but I, I, I didn't expect um, to see uh, the FCC essentially say that the public switch network encompasses the entirety of the internet. Um, you know, traditionally, as that phrase has been used, um, it is in reference to, you know, traditional t- telephony to the, you know, the public switch telephone network. Um, right. <laughs> now, you know, is the Internet interconnected with the public switch telephone network? I mean, in, in some ways, it seems a little glib, but I think the FCC's strongest substantive point is, of course, the Internet is inter- interconnected with the public switch telephone network. We all have voice over IP. Right. It so is now. Get, yeah. You can get to any point on the public switch telephone network uh, if you have a connection to the Internet and the right application. Uh, but the notice issue, I think, is in some ways more problematic than uh, than the substantive one, although it's probably more easily cured. Yeah, you could. Yeah, what does it really get you? I mean, uh, in terms of long term litigation strategy, what it gets you is the next. It potentially gets you to the next administration. You got to do a new notice proposed rulemaking, and then you have to do a new. Yeah, period. but you've but every but I don't think it would invalidate everything. It would the, the rules would still apply to um to uh, fixed broadband internet access providers, and so suddenly it's they, they're not going to want it, the the cable companies are not going to want the mobile carriers to be able to live under a an entirely different regime. Right. So now you're either going to have to cancel it for everybody, or you're going to have to make it work for everybody. So you're it's gonna it's not going to be tenable to have it apply to cable, which it still would even if you got a remand on for mobile. Right. Right. Have it apply to cable, but not apply to mobile. It's going to be everyone or no one. And I think the next administration, if it's a Republican administration, will they want to cancel it for everybody? Maybe, but maybe not. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just, for yeah, again, for the listeners, I mean, when we talk about mobile, we're talking about what you think. I mean, this is a regulation of your plan through T-Mobile or, or Sprint or for AT&T or Verizon. Access, yeah, broadband access. Your data your plan. This right. is your data plan. Right. And... Uh, is it subject to these no throttling, no blocking, uh, and, um, and no paid priority? No, no paid priority, and then the general standard about no bad stuff, right? right. In the long run, <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's it seems to me from this. I mean, just to, in order to have those regulations in place, they have to characterize mobile broadband as a telecommunication service, and in order to do that, they have to show that it intercon- that it is that it interconnects with the public switch network or a public switch network. Is that right? And and so there's a there's a question about whether that phrase in the statute means the telephony network. And one argument is yes, now you can get to any point on the right. internet by making the right tones into a telephone means and calling the right number. And you can also get to any point on the telephone network by uh by getting on any point of the internet, right? So th- everything reaches itself. Um uh but then the other argument is that public switch network doesn't just mean the telephone network, right? That it means 
something else. And I, I don't, I don't have enough background to know how all that works. So there's a third point. There's the two that you guys have been talking about, but a third point is, um, this is (laughs) the point I made before. This is all converged anyway, right? So, so phone service is packet switched, not circuit switched anymore. So the, the the sort of most classic understanding of the phrase public switch telephone network was that it was circuit switch technology, not packet technology. But now it's all packet technology. So it's in that sense, too, I think it is the case that mobile is a, a public switch network. Yeah, I. Yeah, and maybe I'm missing something, but, um, you know. So you're optimistic even about this section, optimistic in the sense that the regulations will be upheld. I am. I mean, you know, my biggest source of pessimism about whether this survives review is not to make us do this again, but it's actually King against Burwell. Oh, Um, boy. It's (laughs) it's the fact that, you know, I used to think that we knew how to interpret complex statutes where they're given explicitly to agencies to implement where some of the implementation might involve the resolution of some ambiguities, right? uh, King against Burwell makes me think I'm not supposed to be sanguine about that. I'm supposed to think, well, actually, maybe I don't know the first thing about how courts are supposed <laughs> to handle statutes when they disagree with the agency, right? And so if a court disagrees with the agency uh, for some, you know, do you get to do the nihilistic um, uh, dance around the fire where you just find something to beat the statute to death with? Maybe. I, I don't know. So public switch network, because uh, everything is now basically data rather than complete electrical circuits um public switch there's there is no public switch network and therefore the regulations are gone like that would be the king versus burwell interpretation of maybe the statute. I, I just yeah. don't know what i'm saying is that case is so weird and it hasn't been decided yet i know but I, the explanation for the decision might be so strange that so so i guess I'll, what i'll say is um i i don't yet know whether i'm confident it will survive or not because I want to see how King against Burwell turns out before I express a view. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, speaking of, uh, of Obamacare, I thought it was really interesting. I don't know if either of you read uh, the dissenting uh, opinions from, from the commissioners. Um, but you know, there's some interesting parallels between the arguments against network neutrality and the arguments against Obamacare. I mean, first of all, the, the dissent reads like like sort of like a tea party mad lib in a way um you know there's talk about power grabs and billions in new taxes and how this will benefit trial lawyers and they literally say at one point if you like your data plan you should be able to keep it there's a (laughs) reference a literal (laughs) reference to joe the broadband provider um (laughs) It's, it's Does like anyone eat broccoli? <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, you know, there's there's this sort of anecdote about a you know a small broadband provider whose name is is actually Joe, um, and so you know there's sort of you know, the rhetoric is at least remarkably like uh, a lot of the anti uh, Obamacare uh, rhetoric. Now I don't I don't know uh, what that means for uh, you know the the eventual challenge to. Uh, to the rules, but I, I I do think it's interesting in terms of the the parallels. Yeah, and it's interesting because, of course, you would expect the arg- the arguments against this to sound in in free market rhetoric and, and in free market logic. It's just that it's a weird decision because the the reasons for these regulations are to increase competition and help markets work better. So it's a classic mm-hmm. kind of caught between 
uh, free market ideology and competitive market ideology, where those two might not be the same thing. And in a way, I guess, I mean, that is similar to Obamacare because, you know, I, mm. what one of the goals of Obamacare is to deliver kind of minimal standards of, of, uh, of medical care through a market system, right? You're, it's not quite the same because I think the goal in Obamacare is not to help insurance companies compete better, although that is an element of the exchange, right? It, it, the, the ultimate goal is to reduce the uh, ranks of the uninsured, right? Whereas, uh, you know, here, it, it, I think we don't, I mean, there's, there's more humility about what the future of these technologies uh, is and what, we wa- what, what products we want to come out of, uh, of a competitive market. But the one thing that we do know is we want companies to compete vigorously over providing broadband internet service, you know that's how I would think it was. It was different, even though I would expect the the anti regulatory rhetoric to be roughly the same. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, yeah. Aaron, is there one big important thing here that we are that we're missing, or something else that comes out of this that is relates to your work, or to something else that you think that that people can overlook, or that you know what what would you say to end things up? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of room here, right? Even if these rules uh, are upheld exactly as written, there are a lot of open questions in terms of certain practices uh, that broadband providers are likely to try to embrace, uh, some of which are explicitly talked about in the order and some of which are not. So, like, think about this idea of zero rating, for example, right? So zero rating is this practice of identifying certain kinds of applications or services that it, it get exempt from data caps or other kinds of like you know, usage limits. So, you know, Facebook and Wikipedia have uh, these global programs um, where they work with providers to make sure that when people access Facebook or people access Wikipedia, it doesn't count against their data cap. Um, AT&T has the sponsored data program where essentially, you know, if you're an edge provider, you sign up with AT&T and you give them some money. And when someone accesses your content, it doesn't count against their data cap. Um, T-Mobile is doing this with all kinds of different, uh, streaming music providers right now. Um, yeah. And, um, how's that evaluated under these rules? You know, it's not blocking. It's not throttling. It's not paid prioritization, right? They're not speeding this content up. It's just not counting against the consumer's data cap. Um, so it gets, you know, reviewed under this sort of, you know, amorphous, uh, no unreasonable interference test. Um, that's going to be important going forward, right? So HBO and Showtime are already saying, hey, we want to be uh, zero rated. We don't want our uh, you know, people streaming our content over the internet to count against their data caps. Apple, uh, you know, thinking about launching some sort of TV subscription service. They're going to want that kind of treatment too. Um, should that be cause for concern, right? If you're the small upstart uh, video provider, maybe you can't pay to have your uh, content zero rated. And if you were in a market where data caps uh, become uh, a more important, you know, so right now data caps are mostly important for uh, mobile service. You know, uh, maybe we move to a model where data caps are more important for fixed uh, broadband as well. You know, that could, that could be really important in driving consumer decisions about which services they want to use. That's 
tied into this other category in the order, the sort of non-broadband data services. Um, and these are services that share kind of the same infrastructure with regular old broadband internet, but are dedicated to sort of very narrow single use kinds of applications. So Joe mentioned voice over IP, right? Comcast uses the same cable that they use to deliver cable TV and to deliver broadband internet access to deliver voice over IP service. That's not uh, regulated by the open internet rules. Uh, your Kindle might have a data connection, not you know uh, regulated by the open internet rules because it's sort of this single use um, service. You know, what if HBO goes to the goes to the providers and says, "Hey, we want to be one of those two. We want to be a broadband, uh, a non broadband um, data service." All of a sudden, um, are they exempt from these rules? Uh, and what does that mean for people who can't pay for that kind of uh, dedicated? It's not a fast lane so much as you know a, a dedicated lane uh, within the broadband infrastructure. So those are a couple of the really big open questions, um, and and I don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, my sense from the order is the FCC is going to look really skeptically at those kinds of arrangements or efforts to categorize things as data services, but. Um, you know that there's going to be there's going to be plenty to fight about, even after these rules are are firmly in place. I actually I agree, and I think one interesting thing that that this reclassification also accomplishes, and I think that the commission's cognizant of this in the order, um, is that not only are there things to fight about, but it brings those fights into the FCC itself in a forum where they can actually learn from the disputes. So the 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 sort of complaints you can make about how someone else is getting treated or some other business practice that someone is using, now that that's all also within Title II and this way of thinking about common carriage and and people kind of watching what other common carriers are doing to see if they're playing by the rules, right? The FCC is going to learn from those disputes because suddenly they're going to be in-house adjudicated in a way that common carriage disputes have been adjudicated for a while. So I think that's a good thing, actually. Not not that not that it's not good that there are fights to be had, I suppose. But given that they will be had, I think it's good that the FCC has put itself in a position to learn more from adjudicating them, and develop some additional expertise. There's nothing in these regs that prevents um, this. Is my bottom line, maybe there's nothing in these regs that prevents the cable company from charging a hundred dollars a month for fast internet service, hundred megabits per second. And then $110 for the triple play package that has phone, internet, and cable TV, right? In other words, there's nothing that prevents them from charging in a way that punishes cord cutters. Punishes what? Punishes the cord cutters, people who don't want to have cable TV and they want to, they, they basically, all they want is a dumb pipe and the, the company wants to sell you uh, all of its content and all of its other stuff. And, and so you know the the so still the only discipline on that kind of behavior is the potential for intermodal competition dsl maybe another maybe there there are some markets which are lucky enough to have more than one kind of landline style provider right. or mobile right um maybe increasing lte caps and you know eventually there will be people who just use their lte data plan as their primary internet connection yep. perhaps i mean it, it depends on capacity and price and all of that i mean I don't see anything in this order which stop you know, because it's not about rate regulation and it doesn't appear to get at that unless you look at the stand. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, 
people, the, the public conversation about net neutrality treats it as a stand-in for all of the internet's woes. Um, right. Yeah. And and it's it's not that right. I mean, it's a it's a it's a very targeted solution to a very specific problem, but it doesn't. You're absolutely right. It doesn't address the kind of like deeper dysfunction in our broadband markets, right? We're talking about addressing one symptom of those deeper problems, but like, you know, the lack of competition uh, and, you know, the sort of aging infrastructure that we have, um, you know, gives rise to a bunch of different problems. And this is just one of them. Um, And so, yeah, I I, I agree completely that, you know, some of the, the bigger structural issues uh, aren't really uh, addressed here at all. Yeah. A much bigger, um, an event that the FCC is presiding over that I think would have much more consequence for your concern that you just raised um, is the, uh, the complex set of auctions that are going to happen, I guess, later this year, or early next year, to try to get people who own old licenses for TV to give them up so that they can be used by mobile broadband providers Uh, so that there's much more capacity in this sort of beachfront spectrum where that goes through walls and over long distance and that so, used to so, be so used I'm for company, old TV yeah. broadcast. So, so I'm a company that used to own channel 19 and I don't know right. if there's VHF or UHF or both. But and what I, am I willing to give up my license for in exchange and then the mobile company gets. So you've got to have these two sided right. auctions that are extremely complicated, but, but that's all going to be happening in the not too distant future. That's probably much more consequential for the competition in the different ways of offering broadband internet access that could ultimately uh, make someone who wants to have internet only and nothing else, just give me the pipe, as you keep saying, that that puts that person in a better position. And to be clear by pipe, I mean wire, not not the pipe. I'm not saying pass the pipe. Right. You're not saying meth pipe <laughs> no, or bomb exactly. or anything of that no, nature. No, no, just to be clear. This is not a drug right. show. But we we've had we'll have other guests for drug shows but when they do the auction we should have Aaron back to talk about this uh uh yeah, do you do you think I'm right about that Aaron that 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 so i i think you're absolutely right that you know what we're doing with this television spectrum uh is incredibly important so when i teach telecom you know one of the early uh, images that i put up in front of my students is the visual representation of the U.S. you know spectrum allocation plan, and the massive amount of this scarce, uh, valuable resource that is devoted to over-the-air television, which you know maybe ten percent of the American public relies on over-the-air television. Right? It's an incredibly small number of people using this incredibly valuable resource. So, yeah, I think the, the 600 megahertz block, uh, you know, double auction thing that's going to happen is interesting. I'm, I, I hope that we see lots of, uh, you know, transactions occurring. The interesting question, the harder question, is what the FCC is willing to do if the auction doesn't produce the results that it wants. Right. Um, right. I don't think TV broadcasters have any entitlement. Um, I frankly sort of object to the idea that... Um, the FCC thinks they need to get paid for uh, a resource that they were given for free in the first place. Um, but in any case, if it doesn't work out the way they want, what do they do next? Do they start forcing people out of the spectrum? One other thing I will say real quickly um, that I think is going on at the FCC that is also important at, in addressing this competition problem is what they're doing around municipal broadband. 
right? And mm. trying to free up space for state and local governments to start providing service directly to consumers. Where that has happened, there are lots of success uh, success stories. Um, but of course, you know the, the incumbents have managed in lots of states to get legislation passed that prevents uh, you know local governments from doing that kind of uh, uh, interesting work. So I think that could have a big impact in the future too. Yeah, cool. Well, we've kept you long enough, Aaron. Thanks so much for joining us. And it was great talking with you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. All right. Until next time. See ya. All right. Take care.